Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Well, hello, I'm Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness. This is our podcast, a show for people around the world who are thinking and feeling deeply about global climate change and other environmental issues and stressors, and also our positive and beautiful connections with nature and the natural world and how we're balancing all that in this current age. Um, and we are really honored to have a guest with us today. Oh, hi, Panu. Hi, Thomas. My name is Caroline Hickman. I'm a lecturer, researcher at the University of Bath here in the UK and an integrative psychosynthesis psychotherapist, primarily, increasingly working with climate emotions. And we're really, really honored to have, have, have Caroline with us. We know of her work and both Panu and I have had the honor of, of collaborating with her a little bit and Panu, Panu for much longer, but uh, we're, we're treading you know, water in some similar territory here. And we want to kind of chat among our, 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 us, ourselves as, as colleagues and friends about this work. Um, Panu, do you want to get us, get us started with our discussion today? Warmly welcome, Caroline. Always a pleasure to talk, talk with you. And our most public cooperation was with the so-called Lancet paper of 2021, uh, investigating children and young people's climate emotions, anxiety, and views about climate politics. We might well discuss that also as part of the episode today. There's plenty of topics, but as usual, we'd really like to talk a bit about your background and how did it happen that you became a psychological specialist uh, who has such a wide understanding on climate emotions and, and dynamics. Would you like to share something of that road, Caroline? Thank you, Caroline. Yeah. Um, I'll give you the, the shortened version if I can. So for 20 years leading up until the year 2000, I was an environmental activist in one part of my life and a psychotherapist in another part of my life. And I think the same as a lot of activists during those years, we assumed that we would act. We assumed that we would take action. How could we not? It was obvious that we would take action. We had the evidence. And I had what I like to call my fabulous midlife crisis when I hit 40 in the year 2000. And I ran away to Egypt to be a diving instructor. I just needed time in a different element. I needed time to go and spend time underwater reflecting, observing, being, rather than such a busy life, doing. And I spent hour after hour underwater in this environment that I loved 
It's the only time I stop thinking. It's the only time I stop being busy is when I'm underwater. Everything calms down and I know how to be when I'm there. And I started noticing, witnessing the destruction of the coral reefs. And I started to see and feel in a much more visceral way what we were doing to our environment. And this was an environment I loved. And I'd not seen it in the same way living in London, so where I'd been before. So although I was conscious and aware of the climate and biodiversity crisis, I'd not felt it in quite the same way. And suddenly I couldn't not see it and couldn't not feel it. And I was living on this little rooftop in this little apartment overlooking the desert and the sea on the Sinai in Egypt, loving what I was doing. And then I started dreaming every night about the climate crisis. And any psychotherapist worth their salt is not going to ignore their dreams, right? And I thought, well, hang on a minute. I'm dreaming this, and yet I'm spending this time underwater. But the dreams became more and more vivid. Animals were speaking to me, whales were speaking to me, and I was listening to them, and I thought, I've got to go back. I've got to go back and go to work and try and find a way to bring these different parts of my life together. The climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, love of the natural world, and psychotherapy, and see how can I bring these together, integrate them somehow. And I'd worked for years with children, particularly disenfranchised children and young people following trauma, following abuse, refugees, asylum seekers, often using quite creative methods to support children in communicating about how they felt about impossible, painful, difficult things. And I started exploring that, how to use those methods So working with groups of primary school children to enable them to talk about extinction, to talk about relationship with whales, W-H-A-L-E-S. We grew a baby humpback whale on a primary school playing field, planting two and a half thousand crocus bulbs with a group of school children to talk to them about their relationship with nature and how much love they had for it and how they felt about what we were doing to the planet as a way of talking about how they felt about what was being done to them and their future. I worked with arts projects. We built puppets. I interviewed puppets rather than children Mm. to talk about these painful things. And my sister said, oh, (laughs) she said, you found your life's work. She said, you've brought all these different parts of your life together. And that was it. So 20 years ago, it was like all the different pieces, like in the kaleidoscope, coalesced and came together. And it's just felt, my heart is fully involved in this ever since. Warm thanks, Caroline, for sharing sharing that there was some some detail that I didn't know myself either. And one author you have been recommending me, and I've been reading some earlier, is James Hollis, mm. the 
psychotherapist who has this book about the midlife passage and now being 44 my, myself I can resonate with some of these midline, midlife elements but I'm always very glad to hear about people who go through these kinds of periods and are able to integrate many things and move to a new new dimension but I'm not going to dwell more on my story on this but to- Thomas what's on your mind when you are hearing all this Oh I'm just really enjoying Carolyn hearing your story as well and um... Um, it just reminds me of myself and Panya and a lot of people we we talk about in an interview that are doing this work. They've they've had some personal witnessing. They've had a, yeah. an epiphany. They've had a you know some connection with the natural world, um, whether through deep immersion in the, in the ocean or in nature. I mean, in in some positive, growthful ways through their childhood, if they're lucky, or through young adult. For myself, it was young adult experiences working in the Grand Canyon and working as a fisherman in Alaska and just various things. And, um, or through loss or trauma or crisis, you know, this waking up syndrome that we talk about where, you know, people are hit, suddenly hit with the, with a sense of crisis. So that, that's, that's just an underlying theme in this work. Uh, I know with therapists that I'm working with to try to train up, some of them haven't had a distinct experience like this. And they're kind of trying to create that, that story for themselves. But but some people can point, you know, very specifically to a time mm. or a moment or a place, and so that's just really, that's just really neat. Um, mm. We should, we should, while we have time, move, move to talk a little bit about this this Lancet paper and its its kind of aftermath in society. So you both know more about this than I do, but this paper was just an attempt to get a a, a wide ranging sense of how young people, young adults, sixteen to twenty five, feel about climate change, environmental issues, governance, all kinds of things. And I know you all worked on that and interviewed young people around the world. And that just really made a splash in the media and people keep referring to it. So I think it's now kind of a talisman, kind of sort of like a um, a benchmark or something like that or a turning point. Um, but what do, you, what do you both think about that Lancet paper? You want to tell a little story about that? Well, the Lancet paper grew from a lot of the qualitative research that I'd been doing for the five or six years before that. So I'd been doing qualitative research, free association narrative interviewing with children and young people all over the world, talking to them about how they felt about climate change. But what started happening for me, I started out thinking climate anxiety was anxiety about climate change. Why wouldn't you think that? And I started to listen more and more to children and young people saying things like, well, yes, of course it's about climate change, but if people were taking action, I wouldn't be so anxious. And I started to realize that I was listening to the stories of children and young people that reminded me more of the stories I'd heard throughout my career in social work of children and young people who were hurt by the very people who were supposed to be protecting them. They were supposed to be reassuring them. They were supposed to be protecting them, whether this was birth families or whether this was other people in power. So the children weren't just upset about what had happened to them. They were upset about the betrayal and the distortion of their emotional response to it. The very people who are supposed to look after you are actually hurting you and at the same time telling you that they're doing it for your own good. So for me, there was also this cognitive betrayal, cognitive hurt. And this was a relational trauma. 
and not just anxiety about climate change. So for me, it was much more deeply understood if we think about not just how we feel, but how we think, how it impacts on our daily living, and then extend it to, and what are your beliefs about government inaction or action? Governments were a representative group. We could have selected other groups, but they were a powerful representative group. And whatever your politics, we elect governments and project onto them. We make an assumption that they will take care of us and they will make decisions in our best interest. And young people repeatedly told us they're not doing that. They don't care about the future of young people. And it is that that causes the distress. It's that that hurts. So I think the Lancet paper was powerful because it joined together all of these different elements. The physical impact of daily living, the emotional impact, which I want Panu to say more about because he's strongly expert in climate emotions, but also that cognitive, how we think about our future and then how we relate to the people who've got the power to change that. So for me, it was that cognitive impact, which makes sense in terms of new research coming out, for example, saying we should equate climate anxiety in children and young people as an adverse childhood experience, the equivalent of war or terrorism that shows how children and young people it's not just about soothing emotions or understanding feelings. It's also putting ourselves in those shoes and thinking about what does it mean to grow up knowing about this and that that is different. So leading me to strongly want to argue that it was a huge mistake if we try and equate climate anxiety in children and young people with climate distress in adults. Mm. They're not the same thing. Mm. Panu. Shut me up. <laughs> Thanks, Caroline. It was really a special project spearheaded by Caroline, who invited many of us who had been working with climate emotions and anxiety and psychology interdisciplinary research. Many of us didn't know each other beforehand. So it was a intuitive, creative, determined sometimes a bit chaotic process which then led to rather groundbreaking results. Uh, the selection of 10 countries around the world wasn't an easy one. We tried to pick countries where there had been discussion about climate change and perhaps some discussion about climate emotions also, but not a total crisis which would draw all attention to itself. And one has to remember that this was during the times of the COVID-19 pandemic anyway, so people had a lot in their minds. And one of the very strong results was uh, actual evidence that people in countries which are not privileged, those young people are still feeling significant distress and betrayal uh, because of climate change. Yeah. Because at that time there was a lot of talk in, in public media about, you know, is this something just for wealthy, privileged Western kids who don't have other things to worry about and now they are uh, complaining about climate change. But that's really not the case. It came up, for example, in Caroline's earlier research, but now we had much more empirical ev evidence of that. And, and we know that it was very validating for some of the young people from these countries, for example, that they finally got international recognition for what they are feeling. Absolutely, yeah. 
I think that was a really important finding. The other really powerful finding, well, two things I want to emphasize. One is that the children and young people in Northern Hemisphere, Western countries are not protected from climate distress just because they're not facing the immediate direct impact of climate change. They're not protected. They still have the emotional and the cognitive fear and anxiety and thoughts about the future. So, for example, 75% worldwide told us the future was frightening, but 73% UK told us the future was frightening. So we realized we can't, not that we would want to, but we can't reassure ourselves that the young people in Finland or France or the UK are somehow protected because they're not. So it has a direct and an indirect impact. 56% worldwide told us humanity was doomed. 51% in the UK told us humanity was doomed. So I think that's really, really important that Children and young people globally have more in common with each other when it comes to worrying about climate change than difference. And there's maybe greater generational differences, and there are other really important differences. For example, in countries like Brazil, where it may be in, certainly in recent years more dangerous to protest, or in the Maldives, or in certain uh, African countries where protest is massively suppressed. Although, why am I saying that when protest is massively suppressed across Europe as well at the moment? Look at the water cannons in Holland and look at the criminalization of protests in the UK. So I don't know why I'm saying this. At the same time as saying it, I'm saying, what are you talking about? Does that similarity about the framing of the future, thinking about the future, which is utterly crucial, the other thing which I thought was crucial about this finding, I'm using the word crucial far too many times, forgive me, guys, was that 48% told us they were dismissed or ignored when they tried to talk about climate change. Now, I think that's huge relevance for us involved in mental health, involved in counselling and psychotherapy, because what else do we silence children and young people when they try and talk about how they feel? It's absurd, isn't it? So there's something really powerful there about people not being able to tolerate listening to children and young people speaking about this. The dismissal, the disenfranchisement, the pathologizing or patronizing or criminalizing of young people's feelings in itself is terrible, regardless of whether it's about climate change or any other issue. Yeah, this is really... I really appreciate listening to you, and this is really rich. I've been taking some notes and, and, and reflecting. Yeah, so it's not, it's, not just the, it's not just the anxiety. It's not just, um, it's not the same as adults. It's not just Western um, as, we, as we kind of make sense of this in, in society. Yeah, it, it's funny. It brings me back to my early research on this whole idea of vicarious impacts of climate change. You know, it's not just the disaster and and the post-disaster, the kind of bullseye effect. I mean, we, we know that it's it's all around the world. We feel and carry the weight. And I think we, we might make a case that young people, because of their being digital natives, um, are even more wired into the global consciousness in some ways than some of their elders. So that might be the case. Um, yeah. But, you know, what's interesting to me, what you're talking about, one of the things that comes up in this area a lot, and I'm always trying to educate people is this 
this question, do we need a diagnosis of climate anxiety and it needs to be, it needs to be in the diagnostic manual. And we don't really, we don't need that because we have all the tools in the diagnostic manual, but I think people want that diagnosis because they, it, they don't feel recognized. I've been thinking about this lately with COVID because COVID was very damaging with people, but people weren't arguing for a COVID anxiety diagnosis really because it was clear the government was taking COVID seriously. And the government was creating an, you know, declared an emergency and mobilized to address COVID. So people's anxieties about COVID were generally reflected in government, um, even to the point that there was a backlash against some of the restrictions that government was placing. So it's just interesting when when government takes action, we don't need to rely on a diagnosis as much because it's honored. Now, with long COVID, for example, people are arguing for a diagnosis for that precisely because that issue is being kind of minimized. So anyway, it's just kind of, it's kind of interesting to think about this whole idea that it's, it's more than the feelings, it's the relations, it's the honoring. I, and I think yeah. younger generations have a higher standard of personhood too, I think, and they, they expect more from adults. This happens in, even in just in families as you all might have known, like young people want to be honored for their identity, for their gender, for their self. And sometimes parents are at a loss because they say, well, I did such a good job being a parent, but my, my young person doesn't want to speak with me, you know, or they, they've cut off because, you know, young people are demanding a lot and they expect a lot. And that's, that's where I go with some of this, mm. some of this as well. Yeah. There's so much there, Thomas, that I want to respond to. Very Quickly, my experience clinically during COVID was that young people's climate anxiety increased mm -hmm. massively because they were observing and witnessing the res global response, however imperfect, to COVID and saying, why aren't we acting like that around climate mm -hmm. and biodiversity crises, which are much bigger at mm -hmm. scale and long term. So... That was my experience, that there was a comparative analysis being done by young people who could see people responding and then feeling even more betrayed and abandoned because they didn't see that response to climate change. I think there's a couple of really important things you've said there. One is, I think, young people, children, they have this profoundly, and I know this is a generalization, so forgive me, they haven't had their sense of injustice and morality beaten out of them by the hardship of life and multiple loss and injustice. And, and I know I'm generalizing and some people unfortunately learn at a very young age that life is unfair. But even if they do learn that, they still maintain this sense that it should be fair. You give two children a, a, a piece of cake and give one a big piece and one a small piece, right? Panu's uh -huh. laughing. He knows exactly what is going to happen. They're not going to sit there and say, oh, that's okay. They're not going to do that, are they? You're going to have open warfare or they will start to subdivide those cakes to make it equal. They will make that adjustment. They have this profound sense of unfairness. And I think that is underpinning a lot of the climate distress that young people feel, because they feel that unfairness and injustice in relation to First Nation children around the world, to, to animals who have not caused this crisis. And it's not fair. 
other children around the world have not caused this, but are facing the worst impacts of it. It's not fair that it is killing animals in their billions around the world. So children still often maintain this profound sense of empathy and relatedness to the other, to the animals, to the trees. When I was a little girl at home and I wasn't getting on with my human parents, which was often in an ordinary kind of way, I would sit at the bottom of the garden and talk to my parent trees, Mm -hmm. an oak tree and an ash tree, because they understood me and I understood them. And I had this profound, loving, soulful relationship with those trees. So if somebody doesn't take care of trees, I still feel that at that level, because that relationship for me has stayed powerful and central to my life, which I think it is for so many children and young people. So it's that sense of, and this is what we came to in the Lancet paper, that, you know, it's not just action on the climate crisis, which children and young people feel. And climate anxiety for children and young people is triggered by the climate crisis, but it is infinitely made worse by the fact that people in power are not acting when they could be acting. And that was the moral injury that we came up with, that you feel betrayed and hurt and abandoned by people. And this is what Sally Weintraub is so brilliant at talking about, the culture of uncare. Mm-hmm. That what, we, what the climate crisis is bringing into sharp relief for us is the fact that we're living in a world that does not care. A 19-year-old said to me, and I have permission to use any of these quotes, he said to me, and his parents contacted me to say, our child doesn't know how to live. And he said to me, tell me how to live in a world that doesn't care about young people. I'm not suicidal, but I don't know how to live with that. So, and I think feeling that profoundly is what takes young people from the, or any of us, um, from the, this is how I can navigate this, to this is unbearable. This is profoundly unbearable. And having moments of feeling it's unbearable, and then recovery. I know this is your happiness podcast, Thomas, and you might be thinking, whoa, we're not asking her back. Um, But I am a real fan of the transformational power of despondency and gloom and doom and despair mm-hmm. because not setting up home in them don't live there but visit pull out the lessons from that and then come back yeah yeah i was i went uh speaking of the ocean earlier i went, we went with my daughter we went uh surfing this past weekend here in oregon out on the coast or at least our, our our version of surfing, which is you know going out in the waves and playing around while there's real surfers out there. Uh, but you know, surfers when they teach you how to surf, surfers they, they say you know you have to stay low, like you have to stay low on your surfboard uh, before you can stand up. And I, I was thinking about that as a metaphor, like f- to feeling our emotions. We have to be in touch with our low emotions while we're feeling our our higher emotions too. We have to kind of stay in touch with all of these emotions. So. There's a there's a passion that I that is inspiring. I think about about this work uh, 
Mm. And I'm inspired by all of your work. And I think people are so thankful about it and gratitude. So there's some positive emotions there that are genuine. And also just this idea of where I know Panu's a big fan of this compound emotions and, you know, balancing the low and the high. So maybe that's a place we can, we can, we can move to here in our, in our closing is just um, our own coping and how you all think about these things and uh, examples of this, these, these kind of deep kind of harmony of different kinds of emotions. What do you think, Panu? Yeah, that's definitely something we have in common, uh, this emphasis on the need to stay with the difficult emotions or dark emotions and the fact that empowering energies and including the so-called positive emotions are also interlinked with, with that. Uh, Caroline, you are doing quite a lot of work also as a therapist in addition to the, the university work and many kinds of yeah. kind of pro projects and you are contacted by I think especially young young people from various corners of the of the world and there would be a lot to talk there. I think a good topic for another episode would be to focus focus on that. But just wanting to say that out li out out loud here and also to link this with the topic that Thomas raised, which is, which is coping. So any thoughts, Caroline, which emerge about how people can cope and perhaps also something about where do you yourself find strength and perseverance amidst all this? Hmm. Okay, thank you. I think there's a very few cases where uh, it is appropriate to have a psychotherapist a climate-aware psychotherapist, and I know we've all talked about this before, a therapist who themselves has, to some degree, processed their feelings about facing the climate emergency in order to be able to be with the people they're working with. Otherwise, there's a risk that you won't be able to tolerate it in other people. And so I think that's really, really important that... It's a journey because therapists, we're humans, we're people. The climate crisis is an emergent mental health difficulty. It's an emergent complex human difficulty, which is unprecedented. We've never faced anything where we've not been able to use pre-existing psychological models to help us navigate it. I genuinely believe that those pre-existing Western medical modalities are not always that helpful here. And I think this links back to what Thomas was just saying about surfing, about letting go of that need to control the water in order to be able to surf with it cooperatively. Because I think the moment you start thinking too much when you're surfing, you find yourself tipped off the board, really. Um, you have to go with the wave. And the climate crisis, I think, holds these possibilities of teaching us what we need to know to move towards creating different futures. So because we've never met anything like this before, I have a tendency recently of saying, if anyone tells you they're an expert in climate emotions, don't listen to them, mm -hmm. don't trust them, run away. Because, you know, I've been immersed in this for over 10 years, longer, and I'm only just starting to understand it. And every time I think I understand it, something else shifts and shows me another aspect. Mm. 
So I think we need that humility and hubris to be with people in this evolving crisis and see it as holding the seeds of possibility, transformational possibility, using psychoeducational models, using creative methods, using relationship, but also listening to the planet, listening to the earth, listening to people around the world as they engage with it for themselves. Because I learn constantly about this and it constantly surprises me. So that's where I think there's a radical hope, a radical optimism, mm -hmm. which is not dismissing the awfulness of it, but also recognizing that it can take us into new ways of envisaging the future. And I'm reminded of the Greek myth of Psyche, who, you know, is set task after task after task that feel impossible and hopeless. And she cries and sobs and collapses on the floor. And then there's a little whisper and it's the ants or it's the insects or it's the mice or it's the grass saying, we'll help. Listen to us. We'll help. Mm. So that working in relationship with the natural world, I think if we can learn to listen more, will help us map pathways through the, a lot of this. And that includes the pathways of the psyche. Yeah, beautifully said, Caroline. That's a good, that's a good uh, place to, to round out our conversation today. Uh, the, the recognition that some of this, 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 this crisis does bring out the, be the best in us the best in us and, and, and the really the ways we should be living in relation to nature and the natural world and to other people. Um, so thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Anna, you want to, you want to make a closing comment so we can finish up here? Warm. Thanks, Caroline. I think that was wonderfully put. And I've been learning a lot from our di dialogues over the years, including today. So great, grateful for that. And of, of course, collectively, we are in the midst of something which is educating us in a, in a deep, deep sense. But I'm really looking forward to future, future conversations. And dear listeners, as always, you can contact us via climatechangeandhappiness.com. And please let, let, let us know know your thoughts thoughts and, and, and feelings and if you have oh, hopes for topics to talk talk with with caroline in a hopeful second episode we might make someday so you can express those too thanks caroline thank you the climate change and happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com.